Titus chapter 2. The date is July 24th, 1725. A baby is born to a commander of a merchant ship and his godly wife. Seven years later, the young lad would mourn the death of his mother at age 11. He went to sea with his father and made six voyages with him before his father would retire. In 1744, at the age of 18, the young man was pressed into service on a man of war, the HMS Harwick. Finding the conditions on board this ship intolerable, he deserted, but was soon recaptured and publicly flogged and demoted from midshipman to common seaman. Through a chain of events in his life, he became the servant of a slave trader and was brutally abused. Early in 1748, he was rescued by a sea captain who had known his father. The rough seaman would ultimately become captain of his own ship, one which dealt in the slave trade. Although he had some early religious instruction from his mother, he had long since given up any religious convictions whatsoever. However, on a homeward voyage, while he was attempting to steer his ship through a violent storm, he experienced what he was later calling his great deliverance. He would record in his journal... That when all seemed lost and the ship was surely going to sink, he cried out from his heart and he said, Lord, have mercy on us. For the rest of his life, he observed the anniversary of May 10th, 1748, as the day of his glorious conversion. A day of humiliation in which he subjected his will to a higher power. In 1750, he married Mary Mary Catlett, with whom he had been in love for many years. By 1755, after a serious illness, he had given up seafaring life altogether. He came to know George Whitfield, the evangelistic preacher, the leader of the Calvinistic Methodist Church, and Newton became one of Whitfield's enthusiastic disciples. And during this period, he also met and came to admire John Wesley, founder of Methodism. In 1764, he became a pastor of the Anglican Church. Ultimately, he would be best known for his hymn writing and his work as a a free slave idealist, with William Wilberforce, the former slave-trading agnostic seaman would, during his years as a pastor, put on paper a hymn that summarized his life and has best become known in the church and even the world as the most loved hymn of all, Amazing Grace, John Newton. 
you stop and you ask, what is so amazing about this grace that can transform lives? Uh, The grace of God is the unmerited love of God bestowed on rebellious sinners. We've been looking at this chapter here, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 for three weeks now, and we've kind of mined out some foundation, and today we're going to finish this off. But I just want to read it so it's fresh in our minds for us this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. This is Paul's letter to Titus. And he wants to encourage Titus. Now, we've been looking at a couple different things, and we've come to understand that God's saving work, because we serve a saving God. Our God is not a God who is just all about judgment and all about anger and all about wrath. And we've looked over the past two weeks how God truly is a saving God. And that saving opportunity in His divine providence is made available to all. We spoke about that. His saving work really puts Him on display. When He saves somebody, His power, His justice, His mercy, His grace is on display as we live our lives as saved individuals in this lost and dying world. And it's the heart of God to save sinners. God desires to save. He desires to transform sinners so that they may do good works. And those good works may demonstrate to other sinners who are not saved the evidence of his saving power. That they might be drawn to him for the same salvation. That's the message of the Christian church. That's the message of the gospel. Nothing displays God's glory like an anointing, amazing, miraculous work of redemption in someone's life. Especially when that someone is an unworthy sinner who deserves the wrath of God. If people, beloved, can't see that we're saved and that we've been saved from sin, if they can't see that, then God is not properly glorified. God has saved us from the penalty of sin in the future with the sacrifice of Christ. He saves us from the power of sin as we live our day every day, as we live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he will save us from the presence of sin when he comes back and takes us out of this sin-filled world in which we live. We looked at God's grace and we defined it as such that it's his unmerited favor. God's grace means that God showered his favor and his blessing on those who did not in any way deserve it. Matter of fact, they deserve just the opposite. They deserve God's wrath and his judgment. But he showed them favor. 
And we talked about God's grace being his unmerited favor. And we talked about God's mercy being God withholding his justice. Last week, we looked at the presence of grace when it appeared, it says in 2.11, that this grace is a sovereign grace. It has to be a sovereign grace because it, it emanates from God himself. It's the grace of God. It's not just some common grace. No, it's the grace of God. It pours out from the heart of the eternal author of the whole entire universe. Long before time began, long before God swooped down, grace reigned in the heart of God. When the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit decided to create the universe, They knew that if they did the act of creation, they knew that there would have to be following an act of redemption. Grace would require it. And that's the second kind of grace, not only sovereign grace, but we looked at saving grace. The sovereign grace of God, it says, that brings salvation. See, our sin amounts to rebellion before a holy God. An all-powerful God. His omnipresence places him on the scene of our sinfulness. When we sin, we don't sin in a bubble isolated from everyone else. That's a lie of the enemy. Our sin affects others. Chiefly, it affects us, it affects God, but it also affects others. And God's omniscient mind, his all-knowing ability, makes him aware of everything. Whether it's just a thought, whether it's a word, whether it's a deed, he's aware of it. He knows it. The plan of salvation is proclaimed throughout the Bible, and it's based not on the merit system, as we talked about, but it's based on the substitution system. God knew that there would be no way we could ever pay for our own sins. He knew that. You couldn't do enough good to pay for your own sins. And so he needed to send someone who could substitute, be our substitute, that being Christ. And that allows his grace to be a saving grace. At Calvary, when the Son of God died in our place, he laid down an eternal life as an atonement for our sins. God is a saving God. And then we looked at, thirdly, God's sufficient grace. It says that it it has appeared, and it's sufficient because it says it it has appeared to all men. And we talked about the fact that, you know what? Our, Our job when we leave this building is not to go out and try to figure out who's chosen and who's not. From our perspective, from a human perspective, we have to be able to go out and when we run into an unbeliever and we share the gospel with them and we tell them, you know what, the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That's not a lie. That's the truth. Obviously, from God's perspective, all those who will be saved are those who are chosen before the foundation of the world. But that's none of our concern. Our concern is to share the gospel with those who are lost, those who are dying. 
and we have to be able to do it with a passion, with a, with a, a willingness to, to make sure that they understand that, that this is a real, true offer from God because our God is a saving God. Today, I want to look at the appeal of grace. And first of all, in your outline there, you see what it teaches us to repudiate, what it teaches us to turn away from. It says there in verse 12, Titus 2.12, training us to renounce, what's the first thing? Ungodliness, to turn away from ungodliness. See, once our hearts have been captured by God's incredible, marvelous, amazing grace, that grace acts as a teacher in our lives. It acts as a schoolmaster in our lives. And it teaches us to turn away from, to repudiate ungodliness. Paul speaks here of denying ungodliness, renouncing ungodliness. That word there, which occurs 31 times in the New Testament, means to disown. Literally, you disown it. In other words, the believer is taught to take a stand against this native, inborn ungodliness in our own hearts. The Bible describes our hearts not as good, but as wicked. By denying ungodliness the right to express itself, And the only way we can do that is yield to the indwelling Spirit of God in our lives. When the Bible says that we need to be filled with the Spirit, that's not a once-covers-all option. When we come to Christ, we are baptized into Christ by the Spirit of God. That's a one-time deal. You're only baptized by the Spirit once. And that's when you are saved and when God brings you into the body of Christ. He gives you the Spirit of God then as a deposit, it says, and we are to yield control to that Spirit each and every moment. And as we yield control, we're filled with the Spirit. That's what that word means. If you're filled with alcohol, you're controlled by the alcohol. And the Bible says that's not a good thing, or anything else for that matter, but we should be controlled by the Spirit of God. And when we're controlled by the Spirit of God, we're able to disown All ungodliness. In Jude 15, it says, Before we were saved, we express our ungodliness, but once we are saved, we express godliness. There should be a change, there should be something different. If there's no change in your life when you come to Christ, I always used to tell young people this when I was a youth pastor because they'd go to camp and they'd raise their hand and they'd go and they'd throw a piece of wood in the fire and, oh yeah, I'm gloriously saved or whatever. And then they'd go back and two weeks later they're back doing the same old stuff that dishonors Christ and they didn't want to have anything to do with church. And I'd always tell them, look, no change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. It's that simple. If you're sitting here this morning and you're holding on to some profession of faith that you made 40 years ago and you haven't seen God do anything in your life since then, you might want to think about getting on your knees, repenting and turning to Christ and being saved. Because religiosity does not save anybody. 
Coming to church has never saved anybody. Praying does not save anybody. Reading the Bible does not save anybody. Memorizing the Bible does not save anybody. Witnessing to people does not save anybody. Feeding the homeless does not save anybody. The only way we're saved, the Bible says clearly that we're saved, what? By God's grace, through faith. It's not of what? Works. Lest any man should boast. Now, depending on where you're at this morning, if you're sitting here feeling pretty self-righteous, you probably don't want to hear that. But maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, man, I don't know if there's any hope for me. Yeah, there is. Because you can't do anything to save yourself. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved. You read that story of John Newton. He experienced that kind of conversion. He lived this godless life on the high seas. And he sank to such a low point in his life that he became a slave of a slave, if you can imagine. Even running away from God, he was pursued by the prayers of his loved ones. And you know what? God caught up with him. He always catches up with you, beloved. And he saved him. On that heaving deck in the middle of a crazy storm, he was instantly, eternally transformed. And he became a blessed and beloved minister of the gospel. And he never forgot. Never. How much he owed to the grace of God. Sometimes we forget what that hymn says. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch, a low person on the rung like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Another verse says, "'Twas grace that taught." There we have grace as the teacher. Grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears what? Relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, when you stop and you begin to realize that when someone is saved, it's always a glorious event. It's always someone being snatched out of the fire, pulled out of the the muck and the mire of sin, and set on the solid rock of Christ. Only He can do that work. And only He can teach us through His grace to deny or repudiate ungodliness. Well, secondly, he says not only ungodliness, but how about unholiness? Saving grace also calls us, teaches us, to turn away from all that's unholy. Paul spoke of denying worldly lusts. Worldly passions. See, when God's grace catches up with us, 
it does not at once translate us from here to glory. Right? I mean, we're saved, but we're still here. We still have this body of flesh. We still live in a sin-stained world. It leaves us in this world of sin so that we might grow in grace and that we might increase in the knowledge of God. Joe read out of Colossians this morning over in Colossians chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse 10. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled or controlled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 10. So as to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what God calls us to do he leaves us here in this sin-stained world so that we might grow in grace i mean every area of the believer's life is wrapped in the unfailing favor of god it really is his grace enables the believer to cope with afflictions that may seem just too overwhelming look over at second corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And look at what Paul writes here. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. To each one... Whoops, I'm 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, there we go. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. We don't know what this was. But if you've ever been stuck with a thorn, if you've ever had a splinter, you know how kind of, you know, it's it's not like you're, you're reeling in pain, but it's just something that's always there. And until you get that thing out of your finger or out of your toe or wherever the splinter is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a constant um, problem. My granddaughter, Sophia, one time they were out playing in the woods or they were going on a walk or doing something. And I remember she went up to some kind of tree. I don't know what the tree was. But she went to climb it. And she wrapped her arms around it and started climbing it. And literally, she had thousands of splinters from the bark of this tree. I mean, they actually had to go to the hospital. Her arms, everywhere. It was just crazy. Well, here he's talking about this thorn in the flesh. And it says, It was given to me a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from what? Becoming conceited. Look at what Paul writes. This is the Apostle Paul, by the way. He prayed, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this deal. Three times that it should leave me. We don't really know what it is. It doesn't say. But whatever it was, it was bugging him. And he asked three times for the Lord to take it away. 
Look at verse 9. But he said to me, my what? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made what? Perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. See, grace enables the believer, it enabled the Apostle Paul to cope with afflictions that otherwise would have just seemed overbearing. You wouldn't have been able to deal with it. But God doesn't take this thing away. And the reason he doesn't is because it has a purpose in your life. Sometimes we don't think of afflictions. We don't think of sicknesses. We don't think of of hardships that we go through as coming from the hand of God. We always think, oh, that's Satan. That's the enemy. Not always, beloved. Not always. Sometimes God in his sovereign hand and providence, he reaches down and he puts something straight in your path that's going to be hard for you to deal with. And it may not just be a day. It may not be a week. It may not be a month. It may not be a year. It may be a lifetime. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows what it's going to take for you to stay on the right path in your life. 2 Corinthians 9. Look at what Paul writes here. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. It enables the believer to cope, but it also teaches the redeemed heart to give generously. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you're a farmer, you know exactly what that's talking about. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? cheerful giver and God is able to make what all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work you want to abound you have to do it through the grace of God it also what you might say colors our conversation. It colors our conversation. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. Verse 6. Colossians 4 verse 6. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, verse 5, making the best use of time. And then it says this, believer, let your speech always be what? Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The grace of God also colors our conversation. Back in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 16, it even tells us that it puts a song in our heart. 
It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Always cracks me up when I run into Christians. I don't, I don't like to sing. I don't sing. You know what? You're being disobedient to the word of God. I don't care if you can sing on key or not. That's not the point. The idea is, is that we, we make a noise. Some make nice noises. Some people make not so nice noises. That's irrelevant. But we do it as unto the Lord. He puts a song in your heart. Hebrews 12, 28 also tells us that he gives us the ability to serve God. The grace gives us the ability to serve God. Hebrews 12, verse 28. It says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God, what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship is, is not just coming and sitting down and hearing a sermon and, and putting something in the plate and singing some songs. That's not what worship is. Worship is, is really giving to God, giving God everything. When we come into this place Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, hopefully that you don't just drag yourself through the door having been up till 4.30 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning, going, well, man, I just hope they sing some good music today because I am just bushed. And you plop yourself down and say, okay, let's, let's worship. That, God's not going to honor that. That'd be like showing up at your job after you've been awake for 48 hours partying all weekend, saying, I'm here Monday morning, ready to go to work. What's your boss going to think? Your boss is going to think, you know what? You don't care too much about your job, pal. You didn't come prepared for the meeting. You don't have any energy. You're not thinking straight. You you haven't done any preparation for the work week. Why should you work here? God asks the same question sometimes, I think, when believers drag themselves through the doors of a church and plop themselves down saying, okay, God, hit me with your best shot. (laughs) I just need something to get me through next next Sunday. We should be preparing our hearts. You know, there's a reason why God gives us a day of rest. Part of that should be preparing our heart as we gather together in worship. God's grace also teaches the believer to turn his back on the desires of the world. James 4.4. James 4.4 clearly says that. that That we should turn our desires Turn our back on the desires of the world. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that what? Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The grace of God allows us to turn our back on the desires of the world. We don't want to be a friend of the world anymore. He transforms us. He changes us into something new. Someone wrote, this world is the devil's lair for sinners, and it's his lure for saints. It's a lair for sinners, but it's also a lure for saints. I mean, when you stop and you think what this world did, they murdered our beloved Savior. It's persecuted godly 
people down through the ages, ever since the days of Cain. It can't rob us as believers of our salvation, but I'll tell you what it can do. It can definitely rob a believer of their assurance. It can definitely rob a believer of his peace, of his joy. The world can also rob him of his testimony and even his reward if he gives in to the desires of sin. Those are the things we're to turn our backs on. We're to repudiate ungodliness, unholiness. What does it teach us that we should reproduce? Then it kind of it turns to the positive here in Colossians in chapter uh, 2, verse 12. It says, first of all, this saving grace teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We should produce gravity. That word soberly speaks of the gravity of the situation. When someone's not sober, what are they? They're giddy. They're, they're goofy. They're just... They're not paying attention. They're, they don't care about anything. But when someone is sober, they're serious. A call to live soberly is a call to exercise self-control. You see that over and over and over in Titus. And the exercise of self-control is over those passions, those desires that are just in our hearts. The word righteously here speaks of a call to goodness. A call to goodness. The Bible says that we're to do what is right at all times. At all costs. On all counts. Doesn't matter. We are to do what we promise to do. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they keep on saying, No man, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. (laughs) Kind of wonder, so you're not telling me the truth all the other times you talk to me? You got a problem here? We're to do what we promise to do, even when it becomes tiresome or inconvenient. Because you know what? It's the right thing, it's the proper thing that we keep our word. We're to take a stand for what is right. Whether it's in our home, in our church, in the world, it doesn't matter. And God's grace teaches us to do that. The word godly there speaks of a call to godliness. We're to be like Jesus. We're called Christians, Christ followers in this present world, it says. That word world refers to the ages. In this present age. The one that's organized by men as opposed to the one that's overseen by God. The world in which all the ungodly exercise their lust and their lostness and their lawlessness, all those things are exercised in this world. But he says, you know what? You're not like that. You're, to call, you're called to be godly. The Old Testament, it gives us certain types of the the world in a sense, and they include Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. They're a picture of the world. The world with all its pride and all its prejudices, all its pleasures, 
It, all those things challenge. They come to challenge our Christian faith. When we try to do this, when we try to live soberly, when we try to live righteously, when we try to live godly, it doesn't just go unchecked. I don't know about you, but that's not an easy thing to do. When Paul called this present world here, it stands in in stark contrast to the world to come. The world to come is the goal for all of us as believers. It's the home of Christians. In this world, what are we called? We're called pilgrims, right? We're called strangers, just as Abraham was. We're not here to, to set up house. We're just passing through. We need to remind ourselves of that. Well, look also here. It continues in verse 13, and he talks about God's promised glory. God's promised glory. Verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a prophetic aspect here to even the grace of God. Look at the glory of our prospect. See, when when Paul wrote in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, what is he referring to? He's referring to the first incarnation, the first advent of Christ. When Jesus came, God's grace was made incarnate in human flesh. We're about ready to celebrate that in several weeks when we have Christmas. We celebrate God coming down and taking on a body, the incarnate deity. John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, grace, truth, and glory were all evident in what Jesus was. That's just who he was. It was also evident in what he said, and it was also evident even in what he did. When Paul wrote Titus 2.13, however, he was directing our attention from the birth of Christ to the second advent of Christ. He was saying, you know what? You should be looking future for that blessed hope, for that glorious appearing. Now, this could either refer to two future comings of the Lord Jesus, his coming in the clouds, the rapture, or and his, his coming on earth. Some commentators say, yeah, one refers to the rapture, one refers to his coming on earth. First, he will come to receive us to himself, the Bible says. We'll be caught up out of here in a twinkling, and we'll just be gone. Our clothes will be left. We'll just have our glorified bodies, and we're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. When that happens on earth here, there's going to be a time of tribulation. Seven years. At the end of that time, the Lord will return with his church from heaven and set up here on earth for a thousand year rule and reign of Christ. So first he'll come to take us out of here, but then he's going to come back with us. The second coming of Christ. We look forward to both of those events. I don't think really, I don't see the evidence here where Paul is necessarily 
discerning which ones he's talking about. He's just saying, hey, he's coming back. <laughs> it's the blessed hope of our, our Christianity. The idea that God is coming back for us. It's a guarantee that we will escape a time here on earth when incredible wrath of God is going to be poured out on this rebellious planet. We looked at that when we went through Matthew 24. The word translated there, looking for, in verse 13, waiting for, looking for, it has the idea that you're expecting something. Have you ever had relatives coming over for dinner, or, or maybe they're, they're coming on a plane, and you go to the meet, meet them at the airport or whatever, and you're, you're looking, you know, they're coming out of the security, oh, is that them, is that them? You know, and finally you see them, you're, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and you do all the whole thing, take their luggage, you do all that stuff, you know. That's the idea, that you're looking forward to them coming. We should be looking forward to that time when Christ returns. Mark uses the term here describing the hope that filled the heart of Joseph of Arimathea. It says in Mark 15, 43, he waited for the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of other passages, we're not going to go into them, that deal with that blessed hope, that looking forward to that. But I think we also need to be reminded not only of the glory of this prospect, but the greatness of it. Look at what it says. The one who appears in power and glory, in verse 13, is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's speaking of who this is, the greatness of it. Isaiah 53, 3 says, the world does not think of him as great. He is still despised. He's still rejected, it says, by all men. His lovely name is used as a curse word. It's linked to some of the, the foulest words that can be dredged up from the, the sewer of the minds of the unregenerate. But to us who believe, He is the great God and our Savior. The names Jesus Christ are sweet music to our souls. Both of those phrases refer to the same individual, by the way. It's not talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Basically, a good translation would be, He who is the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Puts them together. And that's important theologically for other reasons. But that's a good proof text to prove that Jesus Christ is literally God. Well, look at what he did under the, the aspect here. Who it was. Jesus Christ, we read, it says, gave himself for us. Verse 14 who gave himself for us. The one who is coming back has been here before. 2,000 some years ago, he stepped out in eternity, descended from glory to arrive as a babe in Bethlehem. And he didn't come to live, he came to die. Something that was set up before even the foundation of the world. 
This wasn't a last, last ditch effort by God to, to save mankind. No, this was, this was in the mind of God in all eternity. And the fact that he came and he died for us, one whom the angels worshipped, the creator of the universe, he came to die for us? He came to give himself for Adam's helpless race? Creatures of clay? Beings of that are able to commit the worst, heinous sin. I mean, if we were just sitting here today and we were able to somehow tap into your heart and tap into your mind and drag out all your secrets and put them up on the screen, all of us would probably run out of here in just horror. <laughs> because you know what? There's really no good thing in us. That's what the Bible says. And he gave himself for us. Even though we were still in our sins, he gave himself for us. That's why when we sang that song this morning, come just as you are to worship. See, Christianity is one of the only religions that you personally cannot clean yourself up to come to God. He has to do it for you. And you have to come to him just as you are. All the sin, all the muck, all the whatever else is in your life, and you just present it to God and you say, God, you know what? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. Well, what was it? It's the cost of salvation. It says that he might redeem us. The salvation that he bought for us was costly. The word translated redeem there reminds us of the cost because it, it literally means to set free by paying a ransom. To set free by paying a ransom. The Lord Jesus came down into the slave market of the world and he purchased us at an infinite cost. If you look over at 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, it reminds us of the enormous price that was paid. For our salvation. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things. Things like, eh, let's say, silver, gold. All those things are going to be corrupted. No, we were purchased with what? But with the precious blood of Christ. See, redemption is a very costly business, beloved. That's why in Ruth 2, 1 the kingsman redeemer Boaz is first introduced in Scripture as a mighty man of what? Wealth. Wealth. And that's why both in the parable of the hidden treasure and even in the parable of the pearl, the Lord Jesus is depicted as paying an enormous price to secure the prize. A redeemed Israel in one story, a redeemed church in the other. That points us to the completeness of our salvation. Look at what it says back Titus 2.14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself. See, we're redeemed from all lawlessness, all iniquity. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of our iniquity iniquity was laid on him. That's why the atonement of Christ was not a potential atonement. It had to be a particular atonement. And we talked about that for several weeks. All of our sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. There's some two dozen words in the Greek New Testament to describe sin. And they all kind of talk about the different twists and different spins that our fallen human nature has put on sin. The word here translated iniquity in 2.14 here, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness or iniquity, It means just that. It denotes the the wickedness in general, basically unrighteousness of the human race. It's sometimes translated transgression. Sin is not just something we do wrong, beloved. Sin is a violation, it's a transgression against God's law. Now our society wants us to think, oh no, 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 no. You know, we, we're, we can't be so close-minded as to call sin, sin. But that's what God does. Sin is a transgression of God's law. Well, why, why it was? Look at what it says. Why did this happen? To purify us, first of all. To purify for himself. That points us that, you know what, we're a, a possession. The Savior had a threefold objection here. Uh, First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ took our place on Calvary to purify us. That word means to cleanse. Uh, it brings the, the, in, into the, the reader's mind a goldsmith or a silversmith who was removing those impurities from that precious metal. Or maybe a, a woman who was removing stains out of a piece of cloth. See, the effectiveness of God's salvation in accomplishing this purification that we're talking about is evident from Peter's words. In Acts 15, verses 8 and 9, he says this at the Jerusalem Council conference there. He says, God, who knows the hearts, bear witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, meaning the the Jews and the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by what? Faith. He purified their hearts. God has come to make us clean, clean enough to be with him, to sit where he sits in his holy presence. But also, secondly here, he wanted to possess us a particular, peculiar people, he says, a people who are his own, a people for himself. This word here, some translations, is translated as peculiar. It only occurs here. 
It refers to God's people as an acquisition, his own possession. They're especially and particularly his. That's why the atonement was a particular atonement, not a general atonement. We are a people of his own and set apart from all others. That's what the Bible says. That's what the church is. The church is Christ's unique possession. And then thirdly, to perfect us. It says, zealous for good works. See, in Paul's days, they had uh, what they called zealots. And they were members of a certain party that were just fanatical. They were almost like religious terrorists. They would do anything to move their cause ahead. The zealots were zealous for the wrong reason and the wrong cause. But the Lord Jesus Christ has his own zealots, those who are zealous for doing the good works. Paul used the word zealot here to describe his devotion to Jewish tradition before his conversion in chapter 1, verse 14 of Galatians. James uses, the presiding elder over the Jerusalem church used the same word, boasting to Paul about the thousands of Jewish believers who were still zealous for the law in Acts 21.20. The idea is we should just be sold out for doing the good works that God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. That's what we're called to do. It's not... We're not called to come and play church. We're called to be a display of God's glory, His grace to a lost and dying world that they too would want to inquire, what is different about you? What is this salvation you speak of? Who is this God you serve? Paul just summed this up here to Titus in his command at the end there. He He says there, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I mean, Titus really couldn't compare with the, 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 the character of the, the Cretans nationally. I mean, he just couldn't. That's where his sphere of influence was. But Paul is saying, you know what, don't, don't be discouraged by that. You may just be this little guy here preaching and, and, and doing what I want you to do. But you do it with all the power that God has given you. You shun carnality. You, you shun worldliness. And you live a Christ-like life. And when necessary, Titus, you know what? You may need to rebuke some people. I mean, can't you see young Titus going house to house with this message on his lips? Picture him walking into a cafe, sitting across the table from a, a group of local businessmen and sharing the gospel with them. Maybe he's standing behind his pulpit and holding up Paul's latest letter, the one that's addressed to him, and he reads it over and over and over again because it speaks of the grace of God, that blessed hope, the glorious appearing. See, he, he really wants to emphasize the tremendous truth that every believer, every believer, whether you're a Cretan or a Corinthian, whether you're a Hebrew or a Hellenist, 
whether you're a Syrian or a Samaritan, a Philippian or a Pamphylian. Every believer, beloved, it doesn't matter from what corner of the earth you come, is Christ's own special possession. And as such, we're called to live as such. And just closing here, you see his tremendous confidence in Titus. He says, let no man despise you. That word despise there occurs only here in the New Testament. And it means literally to think around something. To turn over in one's mind. See, in spite of the facts that Paul had commissioned Titus, that Titus was armed with the delegated apostolic authority, and that this epistle provided additional support, Some people would still look at Titus and they would just ridicule his credentials. They would regard Titus as a nobody. And Paul is saying, you know what, Titus? Don't let people get away with that. Titus, you were chosen by God. You're God's man at a particular place at a special time. And Paul wanted him to remember the fact that God has set this up. It's not Titus is doing here, it's God's doing. And that if he acted any other way than what Paul is telling him to act, he would give anyone a a basis for despising him. So he's to act in a Christ-like manner. Next week we're going to begin chapter 3. And we've got a couple more weeks in Titus. And we'll be doing a couple Christmas uh, messages. And then uh, after the first of the year, we'll be heading over into the book of Romans. So, well, Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for these studies that we've had about your amazing grace. And Father, these are profound truths um, that our mind can barely get around and grapple with. Lord, it's, it's said so often, you die in your sins because you don't believe. And whosoever believes will be saved. We just have to do our best to understand your plan. And you know what? We're left sometimes with some deep questions. But there's no question that needs to remain when we look at it from your vantage point. The Bible clearly says if we repent of our sin, if we turn away from our sin, and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess Him as our Lord and Savior. We follow Him in obedience. That we will be made one with you. We'll be reconciled. And that faith comes from hearing the message of Christ. And so we pray this morning, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet believed, having heard of Christ's death, I pray that they will come to faith to believe in the one who died and rose again and be saved and have their sins set aside, forgiven, and be fully reconciled to the God who created them. 
not our job to comprehend your infinite wisdom and your infinite plan for us, Lord. It's simply to obey, to repent, and to believe. And those of us who have done that, those of us who count ourselves as Christians, I pray that we would live lives that look like saved lives, that attract others, that we could be the very instruments by which you save other people. You use us to draw men to yourself. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.